Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network. I am your host for today, Doug. Uh, with me in the virtual studio from all across the planet, we have Tiffany, Elliot, Gabby, and Erica. Hello. 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 So Jonathan is not with us today, but uh, we wish him well. So today we're going to be talking about meat the meat you would never eat. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> So, on this episode, we will look at the future of food, where the science is going, and what we can expect in the coming years. In the food science world, it is not what you can, what can be created, but what will be accepted. New high-tech foods are easy to create in a lab with enough financial backing, though the trouble the industry is having is getting the consumer to overcome the yuck factor. Artificial meat research... Genetically modified animals, cloned meat, lab-grown test tube meat, and bleeding veggie burgers. Nothing is too far out for big corporations looking to make a profit off the notion that consumers want to save the earth while eating, quote, healthy, clean meat, unquote. (laughs) I put that in quotes. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been starting to see a lot of these kind of things popping up in the news. I mean, it's been over a couple of years where it's been talked about, but... uh, Recently, it seems like there's an influx of all these different kind of fake meat things starting to come. I don't know how many of them are actually on the market at this point. Not too many, but they're, they're, the, the near future seems to be all about fake meat. So we're going to delve into that a little bit today um, and talk about some of these abominations that are coming out. Uh, I would like to remind listeners that you can call in at any time. Um, and let us know how you feel about it. Would you eat the shmeat? <laughs> or would you eat cloned meat? Or would you eat the offspring of cloned meat? So are you, are you have. Yes. Are you already <laughs> eating it? <laughs> and if you are, how does it taste? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The only problem is you don't know. Yeah. You might just be like, this meat tastes a little funny. Oh, well. Well, I wanted uh, to comment, Doug, on what you said about how uh, this lab-grown meat, are people already eating it? So just mm -hmm. last week, um, a Bay Area technology food company came out. Uh, They're called Memphis Meats, and they finished their first lab-grown chicken, and they fried Mm -hmm. it into strips and fed it to people in an event. So people are eating it. Um, Did they tell them what it was? Yes. Yeah. They would probably run into some trouble if they kept it a secret. <laughs> what was interesting is uh, they talked about how the company estimated that it cost about $9,000 to make one pound of this meat. And uh, they had, um, you know, some famous cook. I'm not sure. I can't remember the name of him. Wasn't it Gordon Ramsay? Or was that a different it, one? No, it was, it was trained by Gordon Ramsay. So someone he uh, trained. I see. So it's uh, it's being served, and uh, yeah. the feedback was, oh, it tastes good. Oh, it it didn't taste fake or. Oh. Yeah, I wonder if they were just trying to be polite. Mm-hmm. Maybe they told them <laughs> how much it cost. <laughs> exactly, they're kind of like, no, I'll take the real thing, thanks. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of crazy because uh, I I did read a couple of reviews at it that were maybe a little bit more honest and um, this, I can't remember if this is specifically about the chicken or there was actually a burger made as well that people tried. And um, 
one, I think it was the burger that like one of the, one of the people who tried it said they found it very similar to like a turkey burger because, um, it, uh, it was very dry. Like they hadn't put any fat into it or anything. Like, so it wasn't really like meat. It was just the muscle component. And so it wasn't really like, so he said it was really dry and like, he said it tasted okay, but you know, not exactly the most glowing endorsement really. <laughs> so it is low fat manufacturer muscle meat. Yeah. What can be possibly wrong? <laughs> You're wrong with well, should we actually go to the video first that tells us a little bit about how it's made? Or the audio, I mean? Yeah, we yeah. can do that. But some some of the earliest articles that I've been reading about this from way back in 2007, mm-hmm. I'm sure they probably could have been early. So they've been working on this crap for a very, very long time. And you hear a little yeah. bit about it, and then you don't hear anything anymore. So you always wonder, like, what's the progress? Not that I'm looking forward to it or anything, but <laughs> where is this yeah. going? Like, is this just That's some true. stupid lab exercise that these... You know, mad scientists think, are doing to occupy I, their time, or what's going on? I think the last time I remember reading it on media, it was about Dolly, and this was a cute sheep. It was cloned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Well, well, that first burger, I think they called it the Franken burger, and it was the first lab-grown <laughs> beef burger. And so it was a five-ounce patty, and it used cow stem cells. And it took a Dutch scientist four years of research and over $300,000 to create it. Mm. Huh. So it's not like it's yeah. going to be an affordable option. <laughs> well, let's, <laughs> let's go to this clip. The meat of the future will likely be lab-grown. Compared to our conventional methods of getting meat on the table, lab-grown meat, which debuted in 2013, doesn't involve slaughtering of animals, nor does it require as many environmental resources. Compared to other livestock, raising cows require 28 times more land and 11 times more water. The World Wildlife Fund adds that beef production drives 25% of global land use and forestry emissions. And in the near future, lab-grown meat is going to be cheaper, faster, and more environmentally friendly to produce for our growing population. But how exactly does one grow meat in a lab? The process isn't as weird as you might think. Currently, the most successful method involves harvesting stem cells from cows. Stem cells are the building blocks of essentially everything, from muscles to organs, from which muscle tissue is harvested from the live animal in what is said to be a harmless, painless procedure. The tissue is made up of muscle and fat cells, which the scientists separate from one another. What we need are the muscles, which are then dissected and cultured. Cell culturing is where a cell is removed from a plant or animal and then put into a favorable artificial environment, usually some type of substrate that supplies essential nutrients like amino acids and carbohydrates to grow. All it takes is just one singular muscle stem cell to grow up to one trillion muscle cells. The newly grown muscle cells naturally merge together to form tiny myotubes, which are then placed in a ring. The muscle cells' tendency to contract frequently causes them to grow into a small strand of muscle tissue. The muscle tissue tubes are then layered together to form a hamburger shape. One muscle cell has the potential to turn into one trillion muscle tissue strands, which is a lot of burgers. 
The lab-grown hamburgers don't quite look like normal hamburgers, and are much paler in color and blander in taste. But as scientists point out, that blander taste is a fair trade for an efficient way to create protein and feed the world's growing population. The price of lab-grown hamburgers has already dropped from $325,000 to just over $11 per patty, while it is still pricey compared to a Big Mac, which costs $4.79 on average. The price will likely drop in the future as production methods are streamlined, meaning that more likely than not, lab-grown meat will be on your dinner plate in the near future. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a lot of music so, at the end there. What a depressing <laughs> prospect. Um, the, yeah. the idea that lab-grown meat is going to be on our plates in the future. So they yeah, say. I'm not looking forward to that day. So they wish. <laughs> yeah. But no one is asking so it, for it. No one. Everybody is totally grossed out by. Grossed not even the yeah. Star Trek fans are asking for it. No. <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting because it kind of brings up like the beginning of that audio clip was all about um, why it's needed, mm-hmm. and it's kind of very similar to a lot of all these um, you know vegetarian arguments that we have kind of debunked extensively on the show before. But about the idea that well, you know, it decreases uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you have to use less land, less pollution, blah, 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 blah. So, and you know, the, the population is rising and then you're not going to be able to feed everybody meat and all these kinds of different things. It's like, it's kind of like all these false problems that this fake meat is supposed to be able to solve. Well, those are the same arguments they use for GMO crops. Like it's supposed to increase yields and it doesn't. You know, let's feed all the starving children. They always try to bring starving children into it to work up mm-hmm. people's emotions so they'll get on their side. But it's going to be the same thing. It's it's not going to lead to anything good. Well, well and it's interesting. So. The, the whole um, vegetarian aspect, like when this stuff first started coming out in some of the articles, they talked about how PETA was raising money, the people for the ethical yeah. treatment of animals, and they were willing to give a million dollars to anyone who could come up with this type of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, they wanted to give a million dollars to anybody who could replicate the taste and feel of a real chicken. And then nobody, nobody could do it, so they dropped the contest. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that really saying something, though? Like, the fact that vegetarians and vegans crave meat so much that they would pay... I mean, the, the, the organization would pay a million dollars just to get something that tasted like meat. Doesn't that sort of suggest to you that you might want to question your your beliefs and your views of the world? In that, mm. <laughs> you know, there's there's a there's a, a biological reason that you're craving meat. <laughs> and you, you shouldn't really have to try and replicate that in any way, you know? Yeah, they even point. used the words meat fix at one point. It's like, oh, it, we, we're looking for a way to kind of, so people can still get their meat fix. Like it's a drug. It's, it's kind not of an weird. addiction. No. Mm. No, it's a biological necessity. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really kind of strange thing when I saw that PETA was actually supporting this and putting money into 
this. I mean, I mean, technically, I don't. It seems like a stretch to me to call it vegan. You know what I mean? Like they're pretty like vegans tend to be pretty hardcore. That it's like there's no animal product whatsoever. They won't wear leather and like anything that is derived from an animal in any way, like milk or eggs or anything. So this is starting off with stem cells from an animal. So I, I don't exactly know how they get past that. Well, one of the arguments, at least for the vegetarians, is that it is more humane to eat a cloned animal that's uh, made specifically for this purpose. But how is that more humane? I mean, it's still an animal, whether it's a clone or not. And it's still going to have to be slaughtered, whether it's a clone or not. So That's stretching it. Yeah. yeah. Well, how it's more humane... Their whole vegetarian, you know, beliefs, uh, it's carnivorous, you know, it mm-hmm. just like killed so many species of animals just to be, you know, so we can have all these giant crops of corn and soy. So their entire belief, it's based on a shady, you know, sand, you know, yeah. shaky sand. Well, maybe let's start with what's most current in this impossible foods creation of the heme burger. Mm. The veggie burger that yeah. bleeds. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you kidding? <laughs> no, apparently Impossible Burger created a hundred percent meat free, despite the fact that it bleeds like a beef patty. And the firm behind the burger, which is Impossible Foods, is backed by uh, Bill Gates yeah. <laughs> um, and an arm of Google. And they say that the main ingredients are wheat protein, coconut oil, and potatoes. And then the key magic addition is heme, which we were all kind of like, hmm, hmm. (laughs) It's an iron-rich compound, uh, abundant in real meat, but it can be grown from soy. Mm. So, So basically, they will be eating wheat, coconut oil, potatoes, and soy. Mm hmm Yeah. So, so the company that bleeds. Yeah, the company claims <laughs> that the heme makes the company's burgers smell, sizzle, bleed, and taste gloriously meaty. Jesus. Well, I think they got one thing right by calling it Impossible Burger because it's impossible <laughs> that anybody could ever eat it and really enjoy it as much as a real hamburger. <laughs> But they are going to open a factory this week in East Oakland, California, and the firm expects to churn out over a million meat-free burgers every month starting this summer. They've raised $182 million, and uh, they want to start selling, or they've already started selling this Impossible Burger in three U.S. restaurants. I noticed they didn't name which restaurants those were, and that... uh, the expansion of the factory will see burgers sold throughout the U.S. and maybe even across the world. And uh, basically, the CEO of Impossible Foods said, anywhere that consumers go to buy meat, we intend to be there competing side by side. <laughs> well, this kind of goes back to what uh, Elliot was saying before about how it kind of like there's this drive to actually eat meat. You know, this idea that the people... You know, it's not, you know, the veggie burger up until now has been like a joke basically because it's not really like a burger at all. It's like this, this patty of like reconstituted food stuff, like astronaut food of some kind. So 
the idea that they're trying to get it more and more like meat. Yes, I want a burger that, you know, that bleeds when I bite into it and like mm-hmm. that tastes exactly like meat and smells just like meat and everything about it is just like meat. And it's like, you can't just eat the meat. <laughs> it, it just seems like there is like like Elliot was saying there it, there does seem to be kind of this drive to have it as, as close as possible to actual meat well another yeah. drive that I notice is the drive to control like behind all of this is the drive to control what people eat they think that we eat too much meat and we shouldn't eat too much meat so they want to control that and either turn everyone into a vegetarian, but they realize that not everybody's going to be down with that. So let's give them something else. But ultimately, it's about controlling what everyone eats. And of course, there's no rich people that's going to be eating this crap. It's all going to be foisted <laughs> upon the poor working class stiffs all over the world who will have no choice, really, because maybe in their minds, they think that... uh this meat is one day going to be affordable and then real meat is going to be something that's reserved for the upper classes. But yeah. Yeah. what is, well, what is this drive to turn us all into vegetarians that eat cricket salad and oh. <laughs> meat and you know, bleeding wheat burgers? <laughs> well, do they know something that we don't know? <laughs> Well, in that theme, oh, go on, Elliot. I was just going to add uh, what I thought was really interesting was that um, through looking at some of the the articles in the news um, over the past couple of years on this subject, it's it's fascinating to see how it's gone from being like thirty thousand dollars for one piece of chicken, and then down to nine thousand dollars, and then in that video, she said that it was something like eleven dollars per burger. And that's happened in, in the space of like 10 or 15 years or something. And it's, mm. it, yeah, I guess it's kind of um, discouraging to see that it really is a possibility. These people do really want to do this. And it's, you know, it, it's possible that they will be able to make it so cheap, possibly even cheaper than meat itself. And then people will be more attracted to the idea of this. Well, to well, kind of comment that on that. Interesting. Oh, oh go ahead. I was just going to say, to comment on that, they did research on how people would respond. And this is in that impossible Heimberger article on SOT. And they found that only 16% of people said they'd be happy to try this sort of cultured meat. Half <laughs> refused to even consider it. And uh, s- over 56% were concerned about the use of chemicals in making that lab-grown meat. Mm. So here you're like, yeah. well, it's not meat, but look at all this stuff that goes into making it. And then 48% felt cultured meat wasn't natural, obviously. Mm-hmm. 29% suspected it was not it would not taste good. <laughs> so it comes yeah. back to that introduction of the yuck factor. Well, I'm wondering about yeah. this 16%. They said that they would try it. That doesn't mean that they want to eat it every day. <laughs> There's a lot of yeah. things that maybe I would try as well. I wouldn't try shmeat. But, you know, I might try and eat a chocolate-covered cricket, but that doesn't mean I want to eat chocolate-covered crickets for the rest of my life. <laughs> no, that's true. Well, oh, yeah. Well, we could, like, let, let's put that question out there. So if anybody wants to call in and answer this, uh, we would be overjoyed or answered in the chat. Okay, if you were in a situation where you were kind of in the grocery store and you're looking for meat, a burger, let's say, and on the one hand, you've got real natural 
farm raised beef, but it's expensive, like really expensive. Like you're kind of like, ah, I don't know. It's really pricey. And then on the other hand, you've got this lab grown meat, which all over the packaging is telling you it's the exact same thing. No animals died in the process and it's so much better for the environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's much, much cheaper. Would anyone out there make that decision to actually go for the, the fake one? I don't expect an answer right away, but just well, while we're waiting that, for a caller, I'll say <laughs> absolutely not. Because for one, I don't think it's wrong to kill animals for meat. That's just the way the world right. is set up. And I'm going to go with that. Yeah. And they taste good, and I like them, and I will continue to eat animals for food. I'm sorry. I don't know who I'm apologizing to, but I guess there is nobody to apologize to because that's the way the world is set up. So obviously the universe or God or the cosmic mind wants us to do this. So I'm more than happy to oblige. If they didn't want us to do it, they wouldn't make them taste so good. Yeah, me makes me happy. You know, I, I went 14 years depriving myself. I was a vegetarian for a long time. And then when I gradually, I mean, I, I finished my spur of vegetarianism by eating some bacon and it was just the best thing ever. <laughs> and I would never go back and I don't feel guilty whatsoever. It's just the way that reality yeah. is. You just have to accept that. And it makes me feel really happy. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, you know, it's, it is like both you guys said, it's kind of the reality of the the situation that we're in. And it's kind of like the entire premise of this, of why it even exists is just based on falsity. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't, it isn't based on reality at all. It isn't based, you know, the idea that, um, we didn't evolve eating meat or that we can somehow avoid that process because we want to be nice to the animals and we don't want to hurt them. I mean, it's, it's a false premise and as uncomfortable as that make may make some of us, um, it's, it is just the reality of the situation, but it's also based on this idea that, you know, increasing, uh, greenhouse gases are destroying the environment and that the only, the big myth out there, I think, is that the only way to feed the world is through factory farming methods, which are cruel mm-hmm. and, um, and filthy and that the animals have to be fed tons of antibiotics just to be able to, to be live long enough to be able to, uh, make it to slaughter which is a complete myth in and of itself. So it seems like everything that these, all these fake meat things are based on are, is just complete lies. Yeah, they act like the only alternative to CAFO farming is to become a vegetarian or to eat fake meat, yeah. fake meat burgers. They never consider humane farming practices whatsoever. That doesn't even come yeah. into the equation for them. Exactly. It's just such black and white thinking, mm-hmm. that whole idea is... And if anyone reads the book by Lear Keith, The Vegetarian Myth, that whole idea is just completely demolished in every sense. Uh, and it's really kind of paradoxical that, you know, these people who are pushing for this um, soy-based, wheat-based burger with the heme in it, that, you know, the, the, the amount of land that is going to be used to produce mm-hmm. that wheat and to produce that soy, that could go to, you know, growing many animals in healthy conditions and they'd be happy Mm. animals. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't have Mm -hmm. to go to a factory farm to get your meat. You can, I mean, there are so many, it's, it's such an up and coming movement now as well in that there are so many farmers who are switching to organic or pasture raised farms and the animals, you know, they get to live as they normally would. Um, and you know, it's not black and white. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I think it's interesting, too, the whole soy aspect of that, because as many of our readers and listeners know, the whole GMO soy is so controversial, and I think it's like, you know, 80 or 90% of the soy produced now is genetically modified, and we're seeing this Mm -hmm. movement that people are much more informed, and here's just another way to slip it by people, Mm -hmm. you know, playing on their emotional attachment to being vegetarian and well you know we know it's gmo but it's better than eating meat (laughs) yeah well it reminds me about the history of um corn syrup you know how it was manufactured from corn and high fructose corn syrup and it's because they had so much corn they had to do something with it you know so they came up with these highly addictive sugar that it's so bad for your health and your liver and uh, this is kind of like goes on the same line like you know they have so much soy and we gotta like recreate something from it so we can keep mass producing it and you know and it will be all gmo and oh it's just yeah it's no end to it I think that it would be one thing if these scientists just did it for fun or for their own family, mm-hmm. like if that's what they want to eat. But they take it so much farther and they try to impose this on everybody in the world. Nobody's asking for it. Nobody wants it. Everybody says yuck. Mm-hmm. And they have, they state that they have to get over the yuck factor. But if they just did it for themselves or they did it for fun and then nobody knew about it, that's okay if they want to do something like that. But don't try to force it. On everybody. Like there was this one scientist that says, you know, a big hurdle is going to get people, how to get people to accept it. Um, and he was blaming Monsanto and all their GMO, mm-hmm. you know, technology for souring the public against scientifically created food. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, he was actually even saying like it, that it wasn't. He wasn't saying that GMOs were bad. He was mm-hmm. just saying that it had been really poorly managed in the way that they were released and the way that, uh, you know, the public perception now is that they're really bad, even though GMOs are still going to save the world, mm-hmm. which is nonsense. And it's such hubris to, that they would even think that they could recreate God's creation. I mean, there's so mm-hmm. much that we don't know about human physiology or animal physiology we think you know we have everything settled with proteins and fats and carbohydrates and you know this and that the vitamins and minerals that are found within meat but there's probably tons of things that we don't know that's contained in meat and then on top of that you have like i don't know would it be called consciousness or some kind of energy profile that is contained Mm -hmm. within real food that cannot be replicated whatsoever in a lab and we'll be missing out on that. So the question then becomes like, if you eat this crap, this fake food, what kind of person will you be? Will you even fully be be a person? If you look at sheeple, look at traditional sort of um, medicinal sort of practices like Chinese medicine or Ayurveda and any sort of naturopathic philosophy, um, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the the sort of information, the core information contained within food as a whole, and that that it carries some energy, like you were just saying, Tiff. Mm-hmm. And um, and that again, it is such obvious to think that you can create something just because it's molecularly um, the same. You know mm-hmm. what? What it was grown in a lab. I mean, what kind of energy does that 
does that bring with it? You know, and, mm. and surely there are so many things, again, as you were just saying, that, that you know, we've, we've uh, isolated a few substances and we think that we know everything. You know, mm. we think, oh, yeah, this contains this and that and that, amino acids, B vitamins and all this stuff. But really, we don't know much about food. There's probably thousands, if not millions of other compounds that have never been discovered and perhaps they never will be discovered. And to think mm -hmm. that we can just create something in a lab and it's going to replicate the exact effects. I mean, it's just so uh, arrogant and anthropocentric and yeah. um, it's never going to lead to good things. <sighs> It all, it all seems to have like come out of this thing, like in, in the, the fifties and sixties and stuff with the, you know, the, the kind of increase in technology and, uh, man's got to get on the moon and like all this kind of astronaut food started coming out where they were kind of trying to replicate, like you were saying, Elliot, like all the things that a human needs and they isolate it down to all these little like individual, uh, nutrients and saying, well, that's everything that an astronaut needs while he's up in space. And it's kind of like that's kind of carried over. And I don't think it's any accident that we have a lot of these kind of high tech guru type people in, like you know, investing in this sort of thing, um, who kind of have these. Yeah, but I mean, they they kind of they they all seem to carry this collective delusion of of wanting to be these like spacemen and like you know <laughs> visiting other planets. Oh, the average person should be able to visit another planet, and like all these kind of like these grand sort of ideas that are completely impractical, mm -hmm. but they have this kind of like you know, science fiction type aspect to it where they're like, yeah, I want to make all that, uh, you know, I want to make uh, Star Trek a reality and like all these, these kinds of things. And it seems like it's that sort of bent that is, is driving this whole thing. Like they, they, their weird vision of the future for humanity is where this is coming from. Yeah. It's they're like always, silicon, they're silicon always valley striving valley. for something. They're never satisfied. We have everything that we need here on earth that we can eat. It's all here. It's just a problem with greedy people and distribution and corruption and all that. But it's all here. Why can't they just be happy with that? And it's it's exactly those kind of people who are really pushing for this. It seems they're the ones who are providing the funding and the the uh, the research money. Like the the one of the co-founders of Google, Sergey Brin. He was one of the first ones to, and uh, I think you mentioned it before, Erica. He 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 invested like three hundred thirty-two thousand dollars into just making this this fake piece of meat. Um, but again, it fits into that whole weird sort of ideology. Like it's all about technology and and um, it, that biohacker kind of mindset. Kind of reminds mm -hmm. me a little bit like Dave Asprey, but slightly more more intense. Um, and it's like they just. Yeah, and insane. It's like they can't just accept that they are human beings. <laughs> it's, it's like they just literally want to recreate that scientific, that um, Star Trek type reality. It's just, it boggles the mind. Well, and it's interesting how they use buzzwords like ethical concerns, right? So, so is it mm. ethical to introduce this sort of new food technology? And uh, obviously people are going to have moral issues, with uh, cultured meat and taking stem cells from pigs instead of killing millions of them and all this weird stuff. But, you know, I mean, they're, they're doing things like growing this meat in sunlight-fueled bioreactors. I mean, that can't be good, really, in any sort of a way. So, well, I mean, this is... No, gonna... was... <laughs> yeah, go, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's coming from the same camp that wants to merge their consciousness with artificial intelligence. So, I mean, that right there should kind of tell you something. But sorry, go ahead, Gabby. 
Tatter said, like, Soylent Green, you know, for the masses, you know, it's a quote from a movie from the 1970s, a science fiction film, and it says, it's people, Soylent Green is made out of people, you know. <laughs> uh, it's a village, you know, due to global collapse. And desperate and dying humanity is unknowingly being fed human remains as a food source. That's about, you know, that's the movie all about. And I was just going to point out that Erika was talking about the ethical, you know, aspects of the hypocrisy. Check out the statement of these lab called Bite Labs, you know, who are developing, you know, meat from celebrity tissue samples, <laughs> they say. At the moment, our primary goal is to provoke discussion and debate around topics of bioethics and celebrity culture. We see inefficiencies, environmental hazards, and ethical problems in the world's food production and distribution. But these are exciting opportunities to disrupt these industries while opening new ways to consume celebrity culture. Oh, <laughs> yuck. <laughs> Consume celebrity culture. So basically, you can go to the store and you can get some sausage that has like Ellen DeGeneres cells in it. <laughs> That's cannibalism. Just call it what it is. It's cannibalism. Yes. That's why people in the concentration camps retorted to when they were absolutely desperate. Cannibalism. Yeah. Well, in that same article, Gabby's talking about the company Bite Labs talks about how, and it's just, yeah. Anyway, the test tube meat would eliminate environmental and ethical concerns associated with livestock production, claiming its celebrity meat production would require less than 1% of the land used in traditional farming. The site also notes the lab meats will not be affected by growth hormones or come into contact with pesticides or chemicals. <laughs> and so, so using this celebrity angle, Bite Labs is hoping they can use celebrities to warm people up to the idea of consuming the meat. Notice how they say the meat. Mm. Like what? <laughs> what exactly is the meat. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, it's like, where do you draw the line exactly? It's like the, the, this idea, the idea seems to be that once you've taken these, um, tissue samples and you've grown new cells with it in a lab, that it's kind of no longer cannibalism because you aren't literally biting into a person, but you're <laughs> eating cells that have been allowed to proliferate in a lab. And it's kind of, it, it kind of raises that whole question. It's like, you know, where, like, what, where is the ethical, you know, it, it's, it's like it's, they're saying, well, we're getting rid of the ethical concern of harming animals, but, well, it introduces a whole new ethical concern of eating people. <laughs> it's made out of people. <laughs> I mean, what can you even say to that besides get away from me talking a bunch of crazy mess? <laughs> I mean, there's no comeback. There's no re retort for that it's just crazy it's true because it's it's kind of like you either kind of have an understanding that there's something wrong with that or you don't <laughs> it's kind of like how can you really like you know could you really convince somebody that yeah even though you like that celebrity a lot maybe eating their cells is not the best idea uh you know if, if somebody kind of doesn't have that understanding kind of already built in i, I wonder if you should waste any time arguing it <laughs> 
and you have to wonder about the celebrity who would offer themselves up <laughs> to be sampled. <laughs> Eat uh, this in remembrance of, of me. <laughs> yeah. Kanye West. Uh, <laughs> a little dark meat. Well, reading about it, you know, there's a lot of... T- uh, if you just Google the Bite Labs thing, you'll see the, there's a lot of like, oh, it's a hoax. Oh, it's not real. And it makes me uh-huh. kind of wonder, like, whether it's real or not and whether they're doing it is just putting that meme out there to get to plant the seed in people's mind mm-hmm. about it, to get mm-hmm. people thinking about it. Like, this is where the future is going. Yeah. Get used to it. It's going to be here soon. So, you know. When it's here fully, you won't freak out. You might not like it, but you'll eat it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and even in that uh, audio clip we listened to, it says, you know, whether you like it or not, it's coming to your dinner plate. And it's kind of like, you don't have a choice in the matter. This is the future of food. Get used to it. Or it's already on your dinner plate. Not necessarily the celebrity stuff. Yeah. Mm. The lab grown Or the cloned the, meat. The cloned meat. Or the, yeah. or the hashtag eat celebrity meat. <laughs> <laughs> it exists. <laughs> well. Yeah, the cloned stuff does bring up interesting arguments and stuff. You know, it's kind of like if they actually got cloning technology, and this is a big if, they got cloning technology to the point where they could clone an animal, you know, would it be, would there be anything wrong with eating it? I guess is my question. Like, well, if, it's I, a, if it's a clone and it is actually, you know, identical to its donor in every way, is there anything wrong with eating it? Yes. And I okay. say this because cloned animals are not in very good health. They have yeah. something called residual epigenetic reprogramming errors. And Yikes. they're always with the animal. <laughs> And they're passed on to the offspring of the animals. Uh, so a lot of these cloned animals, let's say the majority of them, 90%, they're born with deformities. They have enlarged umbilical cords. They have respiratory distress. They have heart and intestine problems. They, I don't know if you would call it give birth, but the offspring are extremely large so that it, cl- it kills the clone and the mother. Uh, the surrogate mother, um, they need surgery, they need oxygen, they need blood transfusions when they're born, they eat insatiably, but they don't necessarily gain weight, they can't maintain normal body temperatures. So even if it is an animal, in quotes, per se, it's not mm. any kind of animal that I would want to be eating, but then again, you have the CAFO farm animals that are real animals, yeah. but they uh, shoot them up with a bunch of growth hormones and antibiotics. But I think, I mean, again, we have to consider that there are alternatives. There are ethically raised animals that are spending their days outside uh, grazing. So just because mm-hmm. there's CAFO animals doesn't mean that we have to resort to eating cloned animals. Well, the question really comes up, too, is like, how is this a step forward in any way? You know, it's, it's basically you're, you're performing these cruel experiments on animals that are being born to suffer, essentially. Like they, which, I mean, you could argue for the CAFO situation as well, but, you know, the, if, if you are pretty much like getting a 10% yield of, of somewhat normal animals and all of the other ones have these horrible disorders where they're, 
they're suffering incredibly, then it's kind of like, why is this even being pursued? Well, that's a good question, actually. Why is it being pursued? Like, are we, is there an actual need for this? Like, no. do we need to have cloned animals that, that we're consuming? <laughs> it's civilization's collapse, dude. <laughs> that's what it yeah. is. Yeah. Well, and it's been around for a while. So, doing research yeah. for this show, we found an article back from 2012, a Nation of Change website, where uh, the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, uh, Tom Vilsick, and he's been all embroiled in the whole GMO thing for years, he basically came out and said that he has no idea whether people are eating it or not, but instead of actually investigating it, it, him and the USDA assert that it's safe. So, you know, he no came biggie. out. No biggie. He came out. He actually went on record saying that he doesn't know whether or not cloned meat is being put on dinner tables nationwide. <laughs> but then the, an announcement was made um, after the United Kingdom's Food Standards Agency told consumers that meat from descendants of cloned animals had already entered the food supply. Well, his saying that he doesn't know if it's in the U.S. food supply is pretty much an admission that it is in the U.S. food supply. Yeah, and then mm. they go on to say that cloned meat has no substantial difference to traditional meat, oh. and therefore it's safe. But we just listened to what Tiffany said about cloned meat. <laughs> so the fact that the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture would come out and admit this, again, is more of that just planting the seed. Like, oh, well, you're probably already eating it. Yeah, and yeah. we probably already are eating it. And they don't have to label it because if they label it, they know that nobody's going to choose to buy it. And then a lot of the proponents of this type of thing who propose these bills where, you know, they don't want the companies have to label it. They always say, oh, it would be too much of a hardship for companies to take this extra effort to put a label on their package saying that it's cloned meat. It's all about protecting the companies and screw the little guy. I mean, who cares what you're going to eat? I mean, it's safe anyway, so go ahead and eat it, but... Ugh. Yeah. That whole substantial equivalence argument, too, is exactly what they tell us with GMOs as well. They are very clearly not equivalent in any way. There's a lot of differences, and we don't know how different these cloned animals might be. Now, it should be pointed out to people so we're not freaking everybody out. It's not like these things are being mass-produced and, like, being pumped into the, the food supply. We don't it's know that. It's probably the case. Well, no, okay, I guess you're right, actually. We don't know that, for sure. What I, I imagine what's hack what they're talking about is that it's kind of like they're in science labs doing these cloning experiments, and then when they're getting rid of them, they're kind of taking them to an abattoir, and they just end up kind of in the food supply. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I remember way back, uh, there was a, a thing in France where they had... Uh, genetically modified a lamb with jellyfish genes and to dispose of it they just sent it to the abattoir and then by some mistake it just ended up getting sold to a customer and they still don't know who that customer was or what ended up happening with that He's dead um, now. so who knows if they had any kind of effect from it or, or anything but I would imagine that's kind of what's going on like mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's like these massive clone factories somewhere where they're just kind of pumping out but like you said Tiff I don't know maybe they yeah. are doing that <laughs> they might slip a little bit into the ground meat. I mean, they use like mm. the, I don't know, what what do they call it? The slaughterhouse leavings or uh, something that they made. Oh, the, not uh, the pink, pink slime. Goo. 
Yeah, pink goo or whatever, whatever the little bits and bobs that end up on the slaughterhouse floor. They use it for pet food or hot dogs or something (laughs) like that. I'm pretty sure it might end up in a few hot dogs at, you know, some big box store. But just like with the, uh, the GMO wheat or corn or whatever that they feed to the lab animals and they find that like, even throughout the generations, it just totally screws with their bodies and basically turns their guts into little GMO factories. Mm-hmm. So reading yeah. through some of these articles for the show, I found like one mention of a lab study where they had some rats and they fed the rats cloned meat and cloned milk. And mm-hmm. they used the words, the rats showed a greater frequency of vocalization. So I guess <laughs> the rats were just screaming all the time yeah. after they... <laughs> Drank the cloned milk and the cloned meat, so it's not funny. What's, but... g- what's going to happen to a human being <laughs> if the rats just start screaming all the time? What's a human being going to do? They're going to turn into a, a social justice warrior. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! He burger in hand. I think this experiment has already been going on for years in the population. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, Canada won't allow their cloned meat to be labeled as organic, so I guess that's a, a good step. Yeah. yeah. Canada. <laughs> Although it's kind of crazy that they felt that they had to actually come out and say that. <laughs> I mean, I guess that the probably what the the producers were were angling for is that well you know this is lab grown meat or it's cloned meat or you know so they it's been raised ethically it hasn't been fed antibiotics or hormones or anything therefore it's organic mm-hmm. but you know thankfully canada had enough sense to kind of say uh no <laughs> that's that's not organic <laughs> well it's it's a very slippery slope and now what we're seeing is this idea of gene editing animals. Okay, so we have yeah. cloned animals. Now we have this new technology coming out called CRISPR-9, and it's basically gene editing. And in the uh, you know GMO world, it's it's controversial because the statement is, well, if you're not actually adding any additional genes into living organisms, then it's not really considered genetically modified. So with gene editing, they cut out a gene. And some of the science around that has been, um, you know, healing mice of muscular dystrophy, breeding extra muscular beagles. I'm not sure why you would do that. <laughs> Creating hornless cows. So we had an article on Assad about Holstein cows, that they uh, edit the genes of the Holstein cows so they don't grow horns. And they say this is better because then they don't hurt each other in, in <laughs> the farm lot. They're also uh, putting, uh, what is it about the goats? They were gene editing goats to make wool, a uh, different kind of wool. They are also g- using gene editing to vegetables such as the mushroom so that it doesn't turn brown. Mm. <laughs> so the big yeah. discussion becomes... It's not really genetically modified if we just cut out the gene. And so they're trying to, especially like in the U.S., the USDA, the FDA, they're trying to slip this in uh, without any sort of regulatory authority. Hmm. How is that not gene modification? Exactly. If you just take a part of the gene away. 
Exactly. I don't yeah. understand how they come up with that logic. Well, when you think about what they call the Franken fungi, right? So a mushroom turns brown. It is a fungus. Mm. If it's a really brown, yucky, moldy mushroom, you're probably not going to eat it because you'll probably get sick. Mm. So now all of a sudden the mushroom doesn't turn brown and you eat it anyway and you get sick. Yeah. Now, would you think that mm. it's because it didn't tell you by obvious ways that it was bad? Mm. <laughs> no. Yeah. Or like, you know, they're like, well, you know, the cows are all hurting each other when we cram them into this space that they weren't supposed to be into. Uh, you know, and so, so why don't we, instead of changing our farming methods so that we're not, you know, packing cows in like sardines, let's remove their horns. It's just, <laughs> it's just insane. Like, I, I don't know. To me, it, it's like that is very clearly... Uh, genetic modification like there's there's no no question about it in my mind i mean you can you can get into semantics and all that kind of stuff about you know definitions but i mean it, it clearly like i'm i am quite sure that many of the dangers with gmos you know by messing with the genome you're going to have all these un, unintended consequences that aren't necessarily readily visible mm-hmm. and i so i think like you know there it, it might be a little bit different but a lot of the same dangers that we have with genetic modif- like tra- traditional genetic modification. <laughs> That's the good old days of <laughs> You know what I'm saying though, the, 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 the method we're all familiar with, I would think that a lot of those dangers still exist. Mm-hmm. And there's dangers that exist that they don't know exist. Yeah. There's actually a really good article on SOT that I recommend our listeners and chatters read. It's called The Overlooked Threats of Gene Editing. I just want to give this quote that the author makes, which kind of gets to the whole crux of the issue. He says, perhaps no technology has yet has been poised to change the world so profoundly. All life on Earth, every living organism now stands the possibility of potentially being edited on the most basic genetic level, enhancing or degrading it, but forever changing it. Mm. Yes, I think uh, I was reading their article. I think it's pretty good. He also brings the argument of weaponized, you know, vaccines, you know, that this genetic editing can be used to make um, biological warfare, you know, and then they can blame it on like cancer colds mm-hmm. or other degenerative yeah. diseases that are just like are plaguing us already and say, well, that's just cancer, you know. Yeah. Well it was interesting. The FDA actually um earlier this year uh proposed to put tighter regulations on gene edited animals. And actually we're proposing that they consider the animals to be a different animal if they if it has undergone any kind of um, gene editing mm. and they were saying well you know if you're going to be messing with the genome then it's, it's not the same animal anymore and it's like well hold on a second how long have we had the argument for gmos that they're substantially equivalent that it's the same thing an mm-hmm. apple that's had you know fish genes inserted into it is still an apple and you shouldn't worry about it and shut up and eat it and now they're saying well with animals that's not the case it's it, it's a new species and in uh, this article, which is called FDA Proposes Tighter Regulations of Gene-Edited Animals, they speculate that it's actually just making it so that, um, you know, smaller-time um, 
labs or whatever uh, don't really have a chance to get in because they need the, the, the money. They can't afford to go through the process of introducing a new animal, whereas the big biotech companies would, would be able to kind of dominate at that point. So it really seems them. like they can... Comp- yeah, and patent them, exactly. So it seems like it, it's like whatever's convenient, whatever argument is convenient, even mm-hmm. if it's the exact opposite argument of what they've previous been, previously been using, they'll, they'll take it because that's, uh, you know, that's how they get the most profit. Mad world. Mad yeah. world. Yeah. Well, they've already patented certain GMO crops, so you have to buy new seeds every year. So just imagine what mm-hmm. things will be like if you have to buy a, a patented pig from Monsanto yeah. or whomever. The Enviro pig. Yeah. Which we've oh, talked God. about in past shows. And, and you can't yeah. have your, your pigs breed because they'll probably be so jacked up on the inside they, they couldn't reproduce anyway. So you have to buy right. a whole new pig every time you They're want to have genetically a, a pork chop. <laughs> They'd probably genetically modify them to not have sexual organs, so they can't reproduce. Uh, A gender-neutral pig. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they're doing all kinds of crazy things with genetic modification in animals. I mean, they... they, I remember a number of years ago, they came came out with uh, genetically modified cows that would produce human milk. Mm -hmm. So they had modified these cows to produce human well i mean obviously it's not human breast milk but it's something that more resembles human breast milk um as a way for for eating human babies and it's just like this it's just bizarre like science fiction stuff and we've talked about the genetically modified glow chickens on a past show but (laughs) should we bring it up again because they just went back and read the article and i kind of had remembered we talked about it i think it was when we talked about gmo salmon but um, mm. they were they were saying that they created the it was the University of Edinburgh that they, they created these glow chickens as part of a scientific project to block bird flu in egg laying hens, and so these chickens, if they uh, they're they're genetically engineered to uh, they have like a an injected gene inside them that that under ultraviolet light glows in the dark. <laughs> But then as you read the article, you realize, like, what are the implications? So they're egg-laying hens. What happens mm-hmm. to the eggs? <laughs> we eat them. They glow in the dark, too. <laughs> and then you glow in the dark. <laughs> so we'll all be bioluminescent beans? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wow. doesn't just stop with uh, hamburgers and chicken. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess there's a company... They made something called the in vitro burger, but they also want to make uh, steak steak tartare. And I don't know what fruit meat is, but fruit meat. (laughs) And then they use a green and pink striped sushi. And then they have or they envision having some device where you could program different types of red wine or program different types of cola drinks. And they have something called magic meatballs. <laughs> and then there's right. the, the rice with human genes. Oh, the golden rice. Yeah. The go- yeah why why real. does rice need human genes in it? They use proteins that's found in breast milk and saliva. And mm. they uh, inject it into baby rice plants using bacteria. Why is that a good idea? 
Because there's people starving in the world, Tiffany. Yeah, that's exactly it. But we already have rice. (laughs) We have regular rice. But this is better rice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, for me, the chickens, the featherless chickens was already creepy enough for me. Everything else is just like, wow. But featherless (laughs) chickens, they don't need air conditioning. (laughs) Oh, they don't it's have to be the plucked. <laughs> They're more environmentally friendly. Yeah, but one of the downsides to the featherless chickens is that they said that the females aren't attracted to the males. <laughs> so I guess they won't have sex with them, and there goes a featherless chicken. <laughs> <laughs> They're all bald. This whole thing kind of like fits in just to the way that our culture is is progressively moving towards is that it's it's almost like these scientists are trying to create a, a, a life where people have to exert the least amount of effort to do the most basic things. It's like mm. with these mobile phone apps, you know, like a mobile phone app to turn your kettle on or something like that. So you don't <laughs> And it's a similar sort of thing. They, it's almost like they're so lazy or, or perhaps they're just projecting. I don't know. But it's almost like it's going to the point where, okay, uh, because it's so much effort just to pluck a dead chicken that we're going to produce featherless chickens. And it's like <laughs> this pervades every aspect of, mm-hmm. of society nowadays. It's going towards this state in which we're just completely moving away from our natural state as human beings it's like what are they pushing for i don't i don't understand it i think they're trying to create their own reality right here on earth where there already is a reality but has anybody ever read um (laughs) margaret atwood's oryx and crake it's a really creepy Mm. book about this mad scientist reminds me a lot about these mad scientists that we're talking about today but he invented like a half human, half pig pig. And he invented this entirely new species. And this is in a, like a post-apocalyptic world. So you have all these new species of people that are walking around and these pigs that are super, super smart walking around. It's just a crazy world. And I think that that is what these scientists are onto. They want to create a whole new world where all their little inventions and gadgets and specialized foodstuffs can exist and everyone will be okay with it and think it's just a glorious way to live. Yeah, so we're slowly yeah. being introduced to this. Yeah. yeah. And some, someone in the chat just said that it's not the scientists, it's the people who pay the scientists. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair point, but, I mean, if you're a scientist, fair enough, you, you, um, you have to get your funding some ways. But there's also a degree of personal responsibility for what research you conduct so i think mm-hmm. it's kind of half half you know it's a, bit, it's a mad crazy people who fund this stuff you've got too much money and too little brains but then it's also these crazy scientists i i, I tend to think it's both you know mm-hmm. and it's it's just a really uh, it's a symptom of 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 the way that humanity is sort of progressed or or di- degressed if that's even a word yeah. mm-hmm. sure it is now yeah, these little—we've coined it. These scientists wouldn't have the ability to foist this stuff upon the entire world without major financial backing. But I mean, they just get consigned kind of like, to doing little experiments in their garage or something. 
it's kind of like a very because what what I see them doing is kind of solving quote unquote problems with that the problems don't actually exist. You know, it's kind of like they're coming up with these solutions to things that don't actually. It's like I was talking about before. You know, all the arguments for these these lab grown meat and cloned meat and fake meat and all this other kind of stuff. They don't. It's just based on these lies. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. Like you know, Elliot, you're talking about using an app to turn on your kettle. That wasn't a problem. Nobody yeah. had an issue. Like, oh my god, I wish I didn't have to turn on my kettle. You know, <laughs> or like you know, tying your shoes. Oh, it's so hard to tie my shoes. I wish I had a solution to this. It's just these these things that you know they come up with these these things that are like solutions. Like I think of the Enviro pig, and that's basically a pig that they were working on before. I think maybe it doesn't exist anymore, but they were making it so that the pigs would uh, convert nitrates into something else in their digestive system, so that the pig manure that was flowing out of these confined feeding operations and polluting the environment wouldn't have these nitrates in it anymore, so it wouldn't cause this problem. It's like the problem is the confined feeding. The problem mm. is not the nitrates. So it's kind of like they're looking at it at, on such a micro level. They aren't looking at the big picture. And it's like, maybe we should try something other than ramming all these pigs into like this ridiculously small space and actually like, you know, go back to a, a traditional farming method. It's like, no, how can we keep on making this thing work and get rid of all the problems that are, you know, mounting up? Because it's such an unnatural way of doing things. Exactly. It's like the same thing with the GMOs. I mean, time and again, you read, you know, they're going to save the world. They're going to feed people. And all the science shows that, as Tiffany said, they don't produce a higher yield. They contaminate the soil. They contaminate the water. And organizations are showing people can just go back to sustainable agriculture, small farms, and Feeding the world is not a production issue. It's a distribution issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at America. We don't have a lack of food. (laughs) That's for sure. No, it's exactly that. It's kind of like they come up with the invention and they're like, how are we going to sell this to people? Mm -hmm. Well, we need to create a problem that it's solving. So it's like GMOs. It's like, yeah, we're going to solve the starvation problem around the world and we're going to solve the the problem of, you know, uh, malnutrition or something like that by adding vitamins to this genetically modified vegetable or whatever. And really, it's like, it's not about that at all. It's like, we've invented this thing. How are we going to make money off it? Well, we got to sell people on it. Okay, well, what should we tell them? Well, let's tell them this. It's like, why why do we make pigs with glow-in-the-dark snouts? Oh, well, you know, we're solving the problem of farmers tripping on farm implements when they go out to feed the pigs or clean up the sky <laughs> at night or something, because now it's going to, you know, cast some light. So Because it's daylight just, it's savings time, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it's kind of like uh, fortifying foods. It's like breakfast cereals, so they take all of the nutrients out of it, and then it, you're left with this, this semi-type pseudo-food that, that doesn't contain anything good in it. So that they, they claim that it's, they're doing a really good thing by adding back these minerals and these vitamins. But, of course, there's some quality, and, and the real issue, it completely diverts the issue that you're producing non-food in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, if exactly. you know, you know, use whole grains, use whole grains. Don't take everything out of the whole grains and then add it back in. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's tricky, eh? <laughs> but even with the shmeat topic, right, and the lab meat and all those meats, so they're spending millions of dollars 
experimenting, getting it to down to the point, like the woman said in the video, $11 a burger or whatever. So it really think of it as corporate approach to it. They got to make their money back. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we spent millions and millions of dollars, especially with guys like Bill Gates funding these kinds of things. Like, mm-hmm. he's not a philanthropist. <laughs> no. He's looking for a return on his investment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Well, as a result of the question I asked earlier, whether people would eat lab-grown meat if they were in a situation where it was cheaper, etc., the resounding majority, well, actually everybody, who answered on the chat said no, they would not do that. And uh, one of our chatters even said that if he was low on funds, he would buy eggs instead. Just make sure they don't glow in the dark. Yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. So, um, do we have anything more to add to the topic? Uh, should we go to well, Zoya's Pet Health? Yeah, we're working on getting that at the moment. Um, oh, okay. I wanted to ask a question that just slipped out of my mind. Oh, I was going to say, to a certain extent, we already have fake food, junk food, mm. basically, is what it is. Fast yeah. foods, snack foods, all the stuff that's on the inner aisle of the grocery shelves. Mm. And we see the the health effects of that, which are not good. Everybody's sick. Everybody's overweight or obese, diabetic, high blood pressure, thyroid disorders, arthritis, you name it. Everything that could possibly go wrong with the human body is going wrong already. And then we're going to add fake meat onto it. I mean, meat in a lot of ways is kind of the most real food that people eat nowadays. If you take away the meat and replace it with fake meat, everything is going to be false. And then where will yeah. that, where will we be as a species? I mean, we're already pretty much <laughs> doomed as it is. But, uh, yeah. No, I mean, it's sad, but true. Like, yeah. I mean, you look at what humanity has kind of evolved eating and the common factor for almost all of it is meat. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of the, it's, it's our ideal food. It kind of has all the stuff in it that we need. Even the stuff that we're not aware of is in there already. Mm-hmm. So we start tinkering with that. And it's like, I don't, it's like you're saying, Tiff, I don't know how much worse things can get, Yeah, but um, it really wow. does put into question. Like you start, like that's, that's like, well, I was going to say it's the staple, but it should be the staple of pretty much everyone's diet because that's where you're getting the nutrition that you need. Mm-hmm. And then you start messing with that staple. It's like, yeah, I, I can't imagine what, what could possibly start happening. Well, we can just see the example of GMOs and what happened to crops. Everything got cross-contaminated and mm. uh, screwed pretty much. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> just if, the whole... Uh, oh, go on, yeah. Gabby. Well, no, I was just going to draw the parallel that basically what that's what's going to happen with meat. You know, gene editing gone, gone out of control and it's going to spread into the natural environment and there you go. And that whole idea yeah. with the, the gene editing, this whole myth of precision and specificity, you know, that 
we'll just cut this gene out of the mushroom and we'll just cut this gene out of the Holstein cow and cut this gene out of here and cut this gene out of there. It's like, you know, we see these things happening over the last 70 years with like the introduction of things like DDT, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. DDT was fine 70 years ago and then we find out that it's not. Or Agent Orange is another one, right? Or things like mm-hmm. asbestos, atrazine, you know, PCBs. It took 50 years for people to start realizing that this isn't sound science, that there is no precision, that mm-hmm. we don't really know what the long-term effects are. And we see that with genetically modified food. Like Tiffany was saying, the, those um, pesticides that are in the gene of the plant are now in your intestines and they're creating pesticide factories in your intestines. And now we see this huge amount of people that have got diseases like irritable bowel syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just indicative of the arrogance, you know? Like, we kind of went through this post-war phase of, like, better living through technology and changing everything up and, oh, you know, nothing can limit human progress and it's, like, divine destiny that we kind of create this amazing technological utopia. And it's like, there's still remnants of that. I mean, it's not even remnants. It's still kind of pervasive. Um, I mean, like we were talking with all these tech guys who are getting into these, these weird things with the the food chain and vaccines and GMOs and all this kind of stuff. It's like, it, it's like anybody who speaks out against this. I mean, the thing is you didn't have people speaking out against DDT um, back when it came out because nobody knew. Right, and it was just kind of this blind um, adherence to this technological determinism. Like nothing we do can be bad; everything is progress. So let's just go with it. And it's it's a very damaging attitude to have, and I run into it all the time, especially in the GMO arguments, where it's like you just get called a luddite because you're you're speaking out against these things, and it's like, oh, you're just scared of progress. It's like, no, this isn't progress. Or you're anti-science, or you're simplistic. You think that nature is best. That's some very simplistic yeah. of you, Doug. Well, on a uh, kind yeah. of a lighter note, one I'm of our chat- chatters said that uh, soon there'll be an app for you that can you can use your smartphone to make whatever you want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on, on, on that topic, like it, it really just makes me question. You know, what is it going to take for for people to learn? from the past you know why can't people just learn i mean like the things that you were mentioning erica agent orange ddt i mean people asbestos even you know people this is generally accepted it's not in any way woo woo you know people accept that these things are toxins and that they were accepted as you know great progressions when they first came out but it it, those same people can can you know they can easily say that oh yeah okay so we indru- introduced this toxic substance everything everyone thought it was okay but it turned out that it really wasn't okay but then these same people are the ones who are touting the benefits of GMOs saying oh yeah these these things are really cool they're new and yeah they're going to be fine it's like what is it going to take for people to to just just to learn from the past you know it's, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's like blind hubris. Yeah. Well, I don't one know person if in our anything chat, is going to help any any of this. Uh, no, I know. 
One person in our chat brought up an interesting point, and it's like, how long will it be before they start cutting this gene and that gene out of people? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, they're already doing that. I don't think it'll that. be that long. They're already experimenting yeah. with that. Yeah, you wonder. I mean, these are just the experiments that we know about. What they're really doing is just anybody's guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in, in some ways, I guess you could kind of look at it as, uh, you know, if they actually are able to, you know, cut out the gene that leads to cancer or something like that. Okay. You know, maybe you could see the value in that and you could, I, I'm not necessarily saying I accept it, but um, there could be an argument made. But I mean, how long would it be before that, um, you know, that turned into like, you know, changing the genes for eye color or hair color, or I don't want to inherit my dad's baldness or like <laughs> all these other things. I want to have the gene, you know, I want to have a gene for bigger boobs installed or something like that. Like <laughs> it's just, it can get to all these, like this, this kind of stupid level of like, um, genetic alteration mm-hmm. for really, you know, materialistic, silly things. And, you know, somebody else even said, well, you could also, you know, edit out the conscience of people, edit out the gene for conscious conscience. Well, I think it's it's kind of close to getting to that point, actually, because I'm sure I remember reading about um, certain types of IVF treatments where um, where the parents were able to sort of specifically choose the eye color of, of the baby that they were going to have. I don't know right. the, the exact details of that, but I, it's fairly... I think I remember reading that, that they are actually introducing that now. So I don't think that that's too far off. Well, that was one of the earliest concerns with genetic modification. Um, when Jeffrey Smith wrote his book, Genetic Roulette, that when they would use the gene gun to blast into a plant cell, there was all this leftover kind of shrapnel, let's mm-hmm. just say, and that mm-hmm. a lot of the concerns of doctors was that this shrapnel could turn on and off genes in the human body. So maybe you eat this GMO corn and it turns on a cancer cell, or it turns off an immune cell. They just don't know, and that's why he named his book Genetic Roulette, because it's a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I know the co-hosts and even our chatters agree, like, I don't, that's not really a risk I'm willing to take. I'd rather yeah. not take that risk. Yeah. I'd rather become a vegetarian <laughs> <laughs> than eat cloned meat. <laughs> and have your heme burger. Yeah. Well, we would just make our own heme burger by planting our own garden, <laughs> sans the soy, and make our own blood meat or plant blood or whatever it is. Well, it's already people are, uh, or city ordinances are clamping down on people having gardens in their mm-hmm. backyards or front yards. And mm-hmm. pretty soon you, you have to smuggle a pig into your basement. <laughs> To, to have meat. I got the black market meat. <laughs> you want to buy a pork chop? <laughs> and that's, that doesn't sound too crazy. When I get to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Should we uh, go to the pet health segment? Yeah, we can. We can go to the pet health segment. It's a long one today, folks. But we'll come back and we'll have a, a recipe. Is it in an interview with a genetically modified animal? It's about the pet food industry. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so maybe we'll get some... Live. Sh- sh- meat in our pet food. 
Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This segment's topic is pet food industry and how they deceive the public. And I would like to share with you an excellent interview conducted by Dr. Karen Becker with Cole Harrington, a creator of the documentary named Pet Fooled, where he shares how he came about creating the movie and about the reaction of the pet food industry, which was very telling. The interview is a bit longer than usual, but it is also very enlightening and revealing. Here it is. We've been conditioned culturally through advertising to believe a certain way. And companies are spending tens of millions of dollars, if not more, to advertise their products. If there was a certain pet food industry leader saying, corn is great because of this study, I would then go buy the study, I would read through the study. And it was very clear that they were... picking information and using it to their advantage. There is a problem, but we can't find the smoking gun. So what does that say? You know, you just allow the product to be sold and continue to kill. All they want is the product to be recalled. So it's not killing more animals. And each one had problems with calling the manufacturer and being ignored. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker. And today I'm going to interview Cole Harrington. And Cole is a documentarian. a film producer, and a filmmaker. And he has put together an amazing project. Cole, you have a lot to share with us. So welcome, first of all. Thank you. And tell me a little bit about uh, the project first. And then, of course, I have a million questions. But, but what's the, what, was the, what is the project, and what's the inspiration for the project? Nice. Um, the project is Petfold. It's a feature documentary. And the inspiration basically came from my co-producer, Mikhail Fawcett, who had a dog who had veterinarian problems, itchy skin. And the person in charge, well, the person hired to basically groom the dog said, this dog is having issues because of the food. Google grain-free pet food. So that led to him Googling being confused, which led to basically a feature film about the topic because it was so confusing. And Cole, did you, um, when you were speaking, uh, kind of to, when you were, when you were brainstorming about this idea, did you, have you ever investigated anything animal before? I mean, I know that you have been in this industry, uh, forever, but, um, were you nervous about approaching not much less pets, but pets food, pet food as a topic? Were you nervous? No, it was, I would basically step into it clueless. I'd never heard of anything relating <laughs> to the pet food industry being a problem. Um, I grew up with dogs. I grew up in Florida, so I grew up with dogs, but they were outside dogs. They would, you know, roam and hunt things themselves. And we had cats growing up too, but the cats would, you know, they would eat the cat food and then go catch their own things. So I was, you know, I'd been exposed to that as a kid, but, only thing I knew was dogs eat dog food, cats eat cat food, you buy it in a can, and that's basically it. So I stepped into it blind, not knowing anything. Yeah, very blind. So your learning curve uh, was exponential. <laughs> it was, I think it, was, it took into, it was about two years into the entire process. Basically, the first year was just trying to figure out, well, what's the issue? Because Whenever you research online, the thing that was interesting to us was that you had two basic 
ideas on the internet about the way the world works. Corn is great, corn is bad. Raw is great, raw is bad. So you had basically two worlds that existed. So we were just trying to look at both sides to kind of weave through each side to see, well, which one makes more sense. And so would you say you spent about a year in the uh, research or investigation phase? How long did it take you to, to, to figure out a path? <laughs> basically, you're just online swimming through anything and everything to learn as much as you can. And then you're calling people and trying to dig a little bit more. But it took about a year just researching the project and meeting with people before we had about, like I would say, 15 people who ironically were all in the Chicago area. So Mikkel and I both looked at each other and said, we have a lot of people in Chicago. Let's just pack up and go. So we packed up and went to Chicago for a week and spoke with a lot of people. And the majority of the film comes from those interviews that happened in that week. And when you were when you were kind of wading through this amazing amount of information, I'm sure that you realized that not only is it a very heated topic, a very passionate topic, but certainly in the last 40 years there have been um, all sorts of reasons that people have become very concerned and involved with this topic, uh, with the recalls and, of course, the massive amount of animal deaths because of pet foods. Were you aware of the recall issue uh, I know that the allergies kind of introduced you to uh, food allergies or, or skin irritation in a personal pet kind of introduced you to this topic. Were you aware of the the recall issue before you investigated or no, had no idea? Had no idea, basically. The, I don't think I've ever thought about pet food before. When Mikkel asked me, you know, hey, I think this could be an interesting topic. It's confusing. I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it just sounds like, you know, okay, there's a problem in everything. And the interesting thing after it's made is I feel like a lot more people are aware today about things. They've heard about things that, you know, the advent of the Internet, everybody's on the Internet, you know, all day, every day. So these things like the recall have lived on um, because we still have recalls. Um, so people are a lot more aware today than I was. I wasn't aware of anything. It took me a year to kind of understand what byproduct was. It was yeah. it was confusing and it's set up to be confusing. Yeah, it is. And and I know uh, when I met you, um you were still very much in that investigation phase where but you know, I love that because you also both of you were very objective. You you didn't have any um you didn't have an underlying goal other than to learn more and to figure out what the issues surrounding this industry were, which I think is a noble goal and also a um uh, a very confusing, ultimately a confusing goal. But you did a great job of kind of sifting through all the issues. Um, at what point in your research or in the in the filmmaking process did did you have aha moments? At what point were you like, oh my gosh, this is starting to make sense in my own brain? Well, the reason why I kind of thought it was like really pet food. You want to look into pet food was because you you know there are really well made documentaries out there and they're really not so well-made documentaries and it's and it sounded at first you know thought of somebody trying to make something out of nothing that's just that was my first reaction to the topic whenever we started going through the research and we came across corn is great corn is bad so the industry was saying one thing and then it also you know obviously had people who were criticizing that um my naive thinking at the time was, if this is really not true, if corn is really, you know, amazing for the dog, then, 
you know, these companies will meet with me and they'll just fully explain. So <laughs> that didn't happen. And, and so, so talk, talk about that, Cole. What, when you uh, when you tried to make contact or made contact with some of the industry leaders, what was your experience? Um, I basically kept a spreadsheet of everything. Um, so anytime I would contact you know a pet food manufacturer or a person who worked at a pet food manufacturer, I would detail it in a spreadsheet. So that went from calling the number leaving a message, calling the media department, leaving a message, writing emails to basically personal emails to Facebook accounts that I knew the person worked, you know, for a certain company and never received a response. The only response I received eventually was after I had kind of a debacle at um, a conference was Hill Science Diet called and they left a voice message, which is in the film, you know, we refuse to, we don't want to participate in this film. Um, so beyond that voicemail, I haven't received any response ever from anybody um, expressing any interest um, in being in the film. So that says a lot. The fact that you're being criticized for something and you're not really standing by it because you don't have to. So, so in your research phase, Initially, when you were making contact with all of these pet food companies, asking for their input, asking for their perspective, their side of the story, and you had no response, you were you did a great job of kind of covering all your bases and getting a, uh, the, all of the opinions coming in. The people that did respond to you had passionate, strong opinions, and ultimately those are the people you interviewed. So how did you go about finding um, people that ultimately uh, put together pieces of this film in a logical order for you? It was a mix of in YouTube. Uh, one of the videos that you had was you were reading pet food packages, and instantly when I saw that, I was like, I need that scene. I want to recreate that scene, but I need that for this film because it was so brash and just very well worded and very clear and concise for you know the viewer to understand. The other person that is a major part of the film is Dr. Barbara Royal, and we found her in an audio file on a law website. Basically, there was a guy by the name of Vince Field who was a law student at the time and very passionate about pet law. He came to find out there's no money in pet law, so he has to practice another form of law, but he's still passionate about you know, the subject and that area. But he, when the 2007 recall had happened, he interviewed Dr. Royal, and all we had was an audio file of her. I had no idea who she was. I just knew that I liked the way she spoke about this topic. She was very upfront and honest, and I needed that honesty about the topic because there are two types of people that you meet, people afraid to say anything and people you know, who are brave to say something, and those people are very few and far in between. So the way we approached everything, basically, we would interview people, and the interviews actually went a lot longer than anyone expected. I think our first interview was two or three hours, somewhere up there. Um, so I would basically take these interviews, transcribe them, and every little detail in the interviews would lead to somebody else. So it was just a constant building of, well, this person says one, two, and three, so I need to go fact check that to see if, it, if that really exists, if that's true. Um, a lot of information on the raw side of the industry started to make more sense the deeper that I got into it. The deeper I got into the side of corn, for example, if 
there was a certain pet food industry leader saying corn is great because of this study. I would then go by the study. I would read through the study. And it was very clear that they were picking information um, and using it to their advantage. The study didn't outright prove that anything was better than another thing, but they were basically using like a line to say dogs can process corn to then market, well, corn is the best thing ever. So it's sort of those types of things were, they took a long time to do. And it's a lot, it took about two years to fully like, oh, I finally understand everything. So I don't know if the average consumer is gonna take two years to fully tackle and understand this, but I feel like for anyone to really fully understand it, for themselves, it's gonna take around that amount of time as well. well. It's a well, lot of information. And you know, it's interesting because just wading through the ingredients that are most commonly put into commercially available pet foods is one thing. But then trying to wrap your brain around uh, the raw food industry or what raw food is or fresh food in general, that's probably something that you had never heard of prior to you taking on this endeavor. You probably had never heard of feeding fresh food or raw food diets to dogs or cats. In our initial interview, it's funny um, because throughout the years, I've just been going through the footage and going through the footage and going through the footage. Um, and in our first interview, I remember <laughs> laughing at myself in the beginning because it's like, what do you mean by raw? Like you literally had to explain in great detail what raw food was because we had never heard of that ever. <laughs> we we just thought, okay, well, no, you know, no corn. It's great. Yeah. Um, we've been conditioned culturally through advertising to believe a certain way. And companies are spending tens of millions of dollars, if not more, to advertise their products. So after a while, you know, it's just a normal part of your thinking. And it becomes a normal part of your thinking of, oh, well, that's normal. I need a car. I'm going to go buy one. Yeah. I've seen this commercial. Part of your uh, documentary includes some very touching interviews with people who have been victims of recalls, um, infected pets have died. How did, you, how did you contact those people, Cole? Or how did you, once you realized that recalls existed, how did you track down the people that you wanted to interview that had had personal experiences with the recall? Um, there were two recalls that we covered for the film. One was the 2007 recall, which was you know, the largest consumer product recall ever at the time of any product. Um, not just pet food. And then the second was a chicken jerky issue. While we were filming, an issue had come to light where I had read an article about pet food or pet parents banding together on a Facebook page because they were having issues with sickness or death relating to treats. So I basically got in contact with a person who kind of facilitated the whole Facebook page. And she created a database of everybody that had reported to her that they had an issue of who the person was, where they lived on a map, was there sickness and sickness only, did the dog live or did the sickness result in death? So she had very detailed information with the chicken jerky. So through her, I was introduced to a lot of different people. If I were flying to Chicago to meet with somebody, I would then go around and meet with all of the different people who would meet with me to say, listen, you know, you know tell me your story. And randomly in Birmingham, we're filming at a conference and I took my camera guy to a restaurant he wanted to go to. And, you know, in casual conversation, people are like, why are you here? Oh, we're filming a little documentary. What about pet food? 
oh my god my roommate just had the worst issue with this chicken jerky treat and even in a bar in birmingham people were having issues and we actually got to speak with her roommate who you know makes it into the film jill sellers and and cole do you, i'm sure that those interviews and i i have seen them they are uh very impactful so you had interviews that were insightful, yeah. interviews that were very emotional. Then you had some interviews. Um, like, what interviews were the most difficult or challenging during this process? I'll just go back to that yep. uh, that question, um, the previous question, just to kind of finish my thoughts. Um, the interesting thing about the chicken jerky situation was that I was meeting with people, and it was basically in real time. So. In Birmingham, I met with a lady who this had just happened to her like three days prior. So she was still confused and she'd never questioned pet food at all or treats. Um, she was just going by what the package said to her. It's all natural and it's homestyle dog, whatever that means. And what was interesting to me is what was happening was that you had all of these people all across the country where the same exact thing was happening to them. Sometimes the dog only got sick. Sometimes the dog died. And then there are other pet owners out there that fed that treat that never had an issue. Um, but the interesting thing was that every person involved in the chicken jerky issue did not want to be involved in the lawsuit. The only thing that they wanted was the product for the product to be pulled off the shelf, the problem to be fixed, and then move on. They had something bad happen to them. They don't want to be involved in a lawsuit because they're not going to get anything. They know that. All they want is the product to be recalled so it's not killing more animals. And each one had problems with calling the manufacturer and being ignored. So that's what that scene points out is sort of how the company treats the consumer that they care for. That was a very shocking thing to me to basically call the company myself and then have them respond, oh, our treats have been tested, the FDA hasn't found anything. Mm -hmm. And then I was lucky enough as well to then speak with the FDA about the issue, um, where they acknowledge there is an issue, but we can't prove it. So it was this catch-22 of there is a problem, but we can't find the smoking gun. So what does that say? You know, you're just allow the product to be sold and continue to kill until you can find a smoking gun. You know that it's killing. You've admitted that it's killing. Uh, that's the way the world works. Uh, the most uncomfortable interview that I had was, I would say, um, we were randomly contacted by the Pet Food Institute, which is the lobbying organization, and they contacted Mikkel and basically said, oh, well, you know, we're affiliated with the industry. We want to help you out. And, you know, my co-producer was like, who is calling and they didn't say who they were for quite a while. It was very odd. Um, so they invited us to come speak with them, and we're like, okay. Um, so we took a trip to Washington, D.C., where we spoke to both the FDA and the Pet Food Institute. And it was very clear with – because you just want to sit back and you want to interview and you want to make that connection and speak from the heart. But with certain questions with the Pet Food Institute – you know, I've, ha I've been covering this chicken jerky issue. You know, would you please enlighten what's going on? Because it's their job to represent the manufacturer. They're not representing the consumer. The Pet Food Institute is representing the interest of the manufacturer. And they said on camera, 
and it made me uncomfortable, there isn't a problem with chicken jerky. This has been tested for years, and the FDA has found nothing. Wow. And my response was, do you re-record your answer? Because I've spoken with people. I'm not trying to, like, catch you on camera saying anything to make you look bad. I, I, but I've covered this issue, and people are having issues that result in death. Everyone is aware of it. I don't understand why yeah. this, why you're just basically saying it doesn't exist. And it was a very uncomfortable, the FDA is quite, you know, looked into this. I trust the FDA. And so whenever you're speaking with someone and you're just trying to get from their point of view that they care, it's hard to draw that conclusion that they care when something is happening. I've met with the people. These people are not making this up. There is no conspiracy. And you say that you represent you know, the interest of consumers as well, but I don't see any evidence that they've ever called anybody yep. that I've spoken with and then, you know, made the interest or the point that they care and they're trying to fix the problem. It's just brushed off as doesn't exist. You know, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, very uncomfortable. I'm actually really surprised that PFI even talked to you. I think it's, well. I think it's interesting, but I'm not surprised by their by by their kind of evasive responses at all. I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, it's different to have the dichotomy between speaking to you and Dr. Royal and a lot of other people. Even the FDA was open and honest. They were like, you can interview us for 30 minutes, be quick. And it turned into a couple of hours uh, because the topic is so in-depth and interesting. And at the end of the day, what I gathered from the FDA interview was sorry, there are laws, we followed the law. That, if they were speaking in code with their eyes, that's what I took from the interview, which was sort of like, we know there's a problem, but we can't prove it. Yep. Um, and it's frustrating. So they were using terminology to me that said that they cared and they wanted to help more, but you know, what can they do if it's yep. not in a law that they yep. abide by? I know that you um, have flown around the United States I know that you have gathered countless hours of footage. Um, how did you pick and choose? How, how long is the film? The final film is 71 minutes. We shot hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage of interviews. It was, we didn't know anything. So we were shooting and learning at the same time. So interviewing someone for a couple of hours was very valuable to us because then we were able to have transcripts after interviewing someone with a lot of information especially from interviewing, you know, yourself, where we could then use what you said and find, you know, the facts behind everything that you said, which would then help us in the end. Um, the difficult thing about making a film is that you're translating this, basically what could be a conversation into a visual aspect. So I, for me, it's like translating English into a different language where you can have a conversation in person with someone, but watching a film is an experience in and of itself. So I had to weigh a lot between this making the most sense for the consumer watching it and not getting bored. So it was like stitching a quilt really, mm -hmm. where what, what topic do we talk about first in order to then go to this topic, mm -hmm. to then order to go to this topic? Because if the order became mixed up, it would just, the consumer would just lose, the viewer would lose all interest in the topic and yeah. be confused. So. Well, I'm impressed that you were able to condense the volume information down under 80 minutes. I'm totally impressed. What was what? What do you think the biggest takeaway for you personally? Because um, your learning curve has just been like 
vertical on this entire topic. What what do you think uh, you've learned the very most from finishing this this entire project? The reason why I like the film is that it's pet food. It's about pet food, but at the same time, it's not about pet food. Um, the, there are many different undertones of this film that represent other industries. The thing that kept me going throughout the years was the fact that I believe, as an American citizen, you have a right to question companies, and you have a right to question your government. And it was very clear that the industry does have influence towards people questioning this product, uh, or questioning this industry, really, um, and the products that they sell. So that's what kept me going throughout the years, is the fact that I believe that you have a right to question what you're being sold, and you have a right to transparency and know what is in what you're being sold. So that was what was the biggest shock to me, was that it really took a lot of time just to understand the basics of what's in these products, and then what should you have, what shouldn't you have, what should you avoid. That was the biggest shock, was that how... I don't know the secret, misleading. I don't know the correct terminology to, you know, allude to how shocking, you know, the way this industry works. Yeah. Deceptive. D- deceptive is the word that I use. Deceptive. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And so, is this a this is a five year project, Cole? Is that right? About five years. We thought it would be two years. <laughs> And then it turns into five. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, that's the way it always goes if you make a film, a documentary film. And privately funded? How does, I know nothing about the film industry. How does, yeah. how do the logistics of funding and then distribution work? It was extremely low budget. Um, basically, we had the funding for what we filmed, filmed everything and made, you know, hired the camera guy and hired a couple of editors to help us allow, help us out along the way was from just friends and family. So that was what allowed us to get through. And then once we moved into the distribution phase, we said, here's our rough cut product. We can't afford to finish it. And so whoever wanted to distribute it had to like, you know, give us finishing funds to finish the movie. And so it was shoestring budget. And um, and, and some of the best documentaries I have ever seen have been made exactly this way. So I'm so excited to see the, the finished version. If people, I know everyone watching this is going to want to see this, Cole. How do they, where are they going to go to see it? How are they going to get a hold of it? So basically, Gravitas is a company here in L.A. and they're a distributor. And they deal with video on demand. So it's basically going to be on all digital platforms. So if you have a certain cable provider, let's say Time Warner is big here in Los Angeles, you can sign on to your, you know, VOD through Time Warner and find Petfold. You can find it on iTunes, Hulu, um, Vimeo on Demand. So basically any digital platform, Xbox, can find Petfold. We wanted to make it as widely available worldwide on any digital platform that we could because that's where consumers are going to be able to watch this film. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what's your projected release date? The release date is October 4th. Oh, so exciting. <laughs> Very exciting. Well, um, I'm, uh, I was 
honored and flattered to be a part of this documentary. I'm excited about what it's going to accomplish in the sense that you're absolutely right. In five years, there has been evolution in the industry, but the majority of people uh, still have no idea that there are issues uh, within the pet food industry that they at least need to be aware of to make the very best choices for the animals that they're caring for, certainly. I appreciate your conviction and hanging in there to finish this. It's such an important topic, a topic, and really you're one of the few people I know that have had um, just the ability to want to tackle it and then get the job done. So I appreciate everything that you and your team have done, um, and I can't wait to see the finished product. Thanks, Cole. Thank you, too. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Zoya. That sounds like Very it'll be a pretty interesting documentary. Yeah. Even though, like the filmmaker himself, <clears throat> I don't spend a lot of time thinking about pet food. I still think uh, that sounds like it would be really interesting. Mm -hmm. So, we have a oh, recipe for this a week. Recipe? Okay. Yeah, it's been a long time I thought, since, I we, you were since we had a recipe, so... Keeping in the spirit of the show, the recipe is for schmeatloaf. Uh, turns out quite yummy. I make it from time to time. I'll probably make it tonight. So forgive me if I don't give exact amounts. I'm not an exact amount person. But basically, yeah, you need some schmeat, some beef schmeat, and then some schmeat from a pork. You can either do like a one pound of beef schmeat or one pound of pork schmeat or a two to one ratio, however, however many people you're going to make this schmeat loaf for. So, uh, you have your schmeat and then you, um, you want to cut up some onions, chop some garlic, finely mince some garlic. You can saute it in butter and or lard. Uh, uh saute that until it's nice and soft. And then you're going to mix all your different schmeats together, uh, add in the garlic and the, uh, the onions and butter and lard, add that into your schmeat. Um, you can add salt and pepper and any other spices that you like. Um, but the key to this schmeat loaf is to add some, your favorite mustard into it. So depending on the size of your schmeat loaf, uh, I like to at least start off with four generous squeezes or four tablespoons of your favorite mustard. Mix that all in there. Form the schmeat into a loaf. Put it into your favorite schmeat loaf pan. And uh, I like to top my schmeat loaf off with some uh, slices of bacon. Real live? Real live bacon. Not live, but it's real. Real bacon. <laughs> Put that on top of your schmeat loaf and uh, cook your schmeat loaf, depending on the size of it, of course, uh, for at least an hour. Uh, if you have a larger schmeat loaf, you can cook it up to an hour and 30 minutes at 350 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in Celsius, but cook that <laughs> it's about in your oven. Yeah. And in the end, you'll have a very nice schmeat loaf with lots of fat and a nice... Mm layer of real bacon on top of it mm. <laughs> that sounds schmagnificent <laughs> that's a schmeat loaf i'd eat <laughs> <laughs> every time you said schmeat i laughed <laughs> I 
<laughs> I don't know what marketing department came up with that one. That was great. That's probably the best thing that comes out of all this research. Schmeet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's our show, folks. Big thanks to my co-hosts, to our chatters. Uh, be sure to tune into the other SOT Talk Radio Network um, show on Sunday, and that's at noon Eastern. But uh, you can check in and see the countdown there on the uh, on the SOT.net page to find out when it is in your local time zone. Um, yeah, that's our show, and we'll be back next week with another another uh, fascinating topic. All right. See you, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.